Good afternoon to all of you. Before I share with you today's message, I want to apologize to you for the last time not really properly handling the Word of God. As you know, it's our practice to preach through books of the Bible. And on last time, uh, we fell a little short of that from the standpoint of how much text we covered. And so I want to say I'm sorry for the last time. And so if you don't mind, I'd like to pick up where I left off. And so we will continue in um, chapter 3 of Colossians. And we want to continue this theme, putting off the old life of sin and putting on new life in Christ. And you can consider this part three, if you would. Um, uh, today, uh, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 17. However, we're only going to be covering verses 14 through 17. Colossians 3, beginning at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which instead you were called in one Body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. May your word penetrate our hearts and our minds that we might be overtaken by your word in such a way leading us to obedience that we might live our lives for your glory. May your word speak to our concerns. May your word help us to know you. Help us, Lord, that we might grow in the knowledge of our Lord. Lord, help us to decrease 
And we pray that you would increase the more. May you be the superstar. May you be the one who gets all of our attention. May all of the glory go to you, Lord, as we hear your word. Speak to us, O God, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Paul is trying to help his listeners to understand that the love of God is at work in us and is the most significant and most recognizable character trait that all Christians must have. It is from this virtue that all the other virtues that we've talked about stand. Without the love of God, nothing else matters. It is important because Christ is our motivation to why we love. It's because he first loved us. And so therefore, we are called To love. Let me explain it another way through an illustration. A gentleman who was a professed Christian was taken seriously ill. He became troubled about the little love he felt in his heart for God and spoke of his experience to a friend. This is how the friend answered him. When I go home from here, I expect to take my baby on my knee, look into her sweet eyes, listen to her charming prattle, and tired as I am, her presence will rest me. For I love that child with unutterable tenderness. But she loves me little. If my heart were breaking, it would not disturb her sleep. If my body were racked with pain, it would not interrupt her play. If I were dead, she would not, she would forget me in a few days. Besides this, she had never brought me a penny, but was a constant expense to me. I'm not rich, but there is not enough money in the world to buy my baby. How is it? Does she love me or do I love her? Do I withhold my love until I know she loves me? Am I I waiting for her to do something worthy of my love before extending it? This practical illustration of the love of God for his children caused the tears to roll down the sick man's face. And he says, oh, I see, he exclaims. It is not my love to God 
but God's love for me that I should be thinking of. And I do not, and I do love him now as I never loved him before. This is the kind of love Christians ought to have for their God because he loves. Paul starts this section by reminding us of what we should put on in which he was referencing how we should dress ourselves with the spiritual clothing God has prepared for us. And so in verses 5 through 9, he reminds us to put off the old clothing of the flesh, which includes immorality, idolatry, anger, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. Christians must discard their old clothes. Then in verses 10 through 17, he expresses to his listeners the kind of clothing that they must put on. And so today I have four points for those of you who will be following along with me. Point number one is put on love. Point number two is letting the peace of Christ rule. Point number three is letting the word of Christ reign. And point number four, doing everything in the name of Christ with thanksgiving. Point number one, putting on love. Why should we put on love? Now, this is not required of the non-believing world because with them there's an inability. There's an inability for them to love as God has called us to love. They, they cannot do anything commanded by God because they do not know God. So therefore, they cannot do anything through faith. Christians, on the other hand, ought to put on love because it solidifies their faithful obedience to God and it ties them all together and it ties the spiritual virtues within the scriptures that we've been called to follow. In other words, love completes us. Love binds us. Love identifies us. Isn't that what the scripture says? They shall know you by the love that you have for one another. Love is who we are. And so this is plainly revealed to us in verse 14 when Paul states, and above all these put on love which binds everything together. Why? It is for perfect harmony. So we have to put on the agape. Well, what do you think Paul meant when he instructed the church to love? What, what are the actions we need to take and how does this 
look in practice. To help us, let's look at some of Paul's other writings in, in order to help us gather more insight as to what Paul meant. So let's consider some parallel scriptures to assist us so that we might gather the evidence and conclude. So let's look at Romans 12, verses 9 and 10. Give you a second there to find your place. Paul states to the Christians in Rome these words, and some scholars believe that Paul at this time wrote his most important letter when he penned this to the church. And so in Romans 9 and 10, it states how love ought to behave. He states, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. In other words, hate it. Hate what is evil. Hold fast. Stand strong to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. According to the text, love is real. Love is not fake news. Is genuine. In other words, we ought not to pretend to love the people of God. It must be from the right motivations. It must be from real desires. Right? It's not just something that we're, we're professing. God is more interest, interested in us saying and meaning what we say. We're called to love. In other words, we ought, uh, we're, we're called to love not to be liked or accepted. So, so the love that we, get, that we give is not so that we can re- receive something in return. But our love is because we're looking to someone. When we look to Christ and we're right b- before God, It's going to affect our relationships in dealing with other people. It's a high calling. But we are disciples. And he says those who are his disciples must take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow him. So, love. We love in obedience to Christ. Because of his love. Therefore, let love be genuine amongst us. And so at Grace Bible Church, we're obligated to love one another. But you know what? We are also obligated to hate evil with a strong passion as well. Right? So we're not to be comfortable with sin. The scripture says that if a brother is falling in sin, that we're to restore such a one. Right? The most important thing is their relationship with God. And so we, we want to restore them. We want to bring them back. Um, so we're obligated to hate evil, love that which is good. We're duty-bound to obey God's word when he commands us. Here's another one. Paul also states in Romans 13, 
8 through 10, a couple of chapters away, one, well, one chapter away, sorry, uh, 13, 8, 8 through 10, owe no one anything except, there it is, what? Love. Except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Remember, the Lord sums up the law with two of the greatest commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy mind, all thy soul. The second is like it, love thy neighbor as thyself. God is summarizing the book of the law with one word, love, love. That's what he says. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, or because love is the fulfilling of the law. So that's not enough. Listen to Paul's instructions to the church in these two other scriptures, emphasizing the same principle. And then you could tell me what you think. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14, he states, be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Then Galatians 5 and 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through, help me, love. Right? Love. And the last point I want to make on this idea of love is that the Lord Jesus states in his high priestly prayer that he will ensure that love remains in us because he will continue to make the Father's name known to us so that love dwells in us. Notice what the Lord states in his high priestly prayer, prayer so that this love might remain. In John 17, 25, and 26, Jesus says to God the Father, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So love is consistent. It's a practice. It's a, a regular principle that we're following in our lives. So as, we are stated, as we've stated on last time, love is the chain that moves and turns the wheels of Christian virtue. For without it, we are going nowhere. So to say it another way, every virtue is dependent upon love. We're only deceiving ourselves, which is the very thing James warns us 
not to do if we're not operating out of love and loving one another. Love, light is like the outer garment that brings the whole outfit together. Every virtue must be tied to it because love is the bind. It's the material that God uses for putting all of the virtues together in perfect unity. So we could say it is impossible for us to have any other virtues without love. And so we may never leave out the love of Christ that binds us together as one body in perfect unity. We are not our own, and we've been bought with a price. And so as the church of Christ, we are commanded to God to put on love. And for the military people, that's, an, that's a direct order. <laughs> because we are bound by the commands that are given by the, the word of God. So therefore, we must love. That leads us to point number two. Letting the peace of Christ rule. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. There must be peace in the body of Christ. We can't be the church of Christ without peace. That's a part of our identity as well. That's who we are. The Lord stated in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. Then he says, my peace. Right? That's, that's different. That's not worldly. That's not what the world is offering. He says, this is my peace I give you. Not as the world gives. I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, troubled neither let them be Afraid. Christ has given us his own peace. His peace will never fail us at any point in our lives. I'm remembering the scriptures where he says, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. I am with you. We're able to find comfort and confidence in God. We're able to take courage. And like Joshua was told, we're able to take courage and be strong in the Lord. Right? When we're looking to him and not in ourselves, then we're able to be strong in the Lord. And so this idea of peace is seen in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, in that wonderful word of encouragement in Numbers 624, we see these words, these words, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. All right? That, that's what the preacher does when 
the worship leader does when they close the service, they're bestowing blessings to the people of God. And so in this benediction, there's a blessing that is being bestowed to the people. We also see this in Paul's final instructions uh, to, with his letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, when he states, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love. Because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely help me do it. Right? But what is the peace of Christ and how should we let it rule us? Kent Hughes just described the meaning of this concept saying, and I quote, this sense here is, let the peace of Christ be umpire in your heart amidst the conflicts of life. And let it decide what is right. Let it be your counselor, unquote. Can you imagine how wonderful and better our lives would have been if we would have trusted God more? How sweet could it have been if we've trusted God more in the circumstances when we needed to? The results would have meant less problems, less headaches, less pain, less difficulties, less frustrations. It would have been more joy, more peace, more uh, contentment, right? More love, right? Because when we're focused upon God, we're able to sense his presence more. We're able to sense his love more because we're not distracted by the word. We have given those things over to God, and now we're resting. Isn't that what David did when his son was trying to kill him? He cleaned up his mat and laid down and went to sleep despite the enemy was on, his, on their way. We're able to have that kind of peace when we're trusting in God. Um, another example is when the peace of Christ rule us, we can be calmed in situations that make us angry in the flesh. 
when things are difficult and we are frustrated. When the peace of Christ rule us, we can hold our tongues when people say stupid or offensive things. We've come across it, and we just pour. That's the peace of Christ ruling us, right? When the peace of Christ rule our hearts, we can love despite the shame because Christ matters more, right? Christ matters more than the vengeance that I want to take out on this individual in front of me, right? That's a struggle, right? We're fighting for our dear lives not to give these people or this person something the flesh wants to give them. But the flesh doesn't care, right? But we know that because we are new in Christ, we're not bound to the flesh. We're bound to Christ. We're trying to put this thing off, right? So when the peace of Christ referees our lives, we will have less sorrow and pain. Think about it. Less words would have been spoken and only that what was necessary would have been said. When the peace of Christ rule, rule uh, we would have peace in situations where there's sickness, where, there, where there's death, where there's grief, where there's forgiveness. When there's failing health, people would ask us, how can you be so calm with all of this that is going on? And we're able to say we're resting in the peace of God. He gives me peace. I'm resting in him. I can't do anything about this over here. I, I can't do anything about that over there. I'm, I'm, I'm giving that over to the Lord, and I'm resting, resting in him. Peace can be only maintained when we abide in Christ. Right? Scripture reminds us to abide, to, if you would, live in Christ. Right? Isn't that what he said in, in John 15? Abide in me, and I in you, and the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. You see the necessity of abiding in Christ that we cannot do anything apart from Christ. And then it's as if God pokes his chest out and says, I am the vine. You will die without me. You are the branches. You're not the cause. I allow my sustenance to go through you. You are dependent on me. Well, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. In other words, there's no life in them. We, we have life because of Christ. And so he says, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it would be done for you. So we benefit when we let the peace of Christ Rule us. Right? This is the necessary virtue. Then while we're putting on these virtues, we must learn that the word of Christ rule. 
How do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as a church so that he might rule? This is done, point number three, by letting the word of Christ reign. Letting the word of Christ reign. In verse 16, Paul states to the church, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So since we are the church of Christ, we must live under the word of Christ. How can we, as the church of Christ, allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly? How do we let it happen? The text says let it happen, right? The text says let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do we let it happen? We can begin by putting our eyes in the text. In the Word, we have to read it. Sometimes we may run across difficult passages, but generally speaking, the Bible can be understood through the plain reading of the text. The scriptures are meant to be read and comprehended by the reader. There's no magic. However, reading the Bible do give us confidence in God. There's no magic, but it gives us confidence more and more in God as we read the text. It also comforts us at times, uh, and then there are times when we are, to be honest, we're disturbed. We're sometimes troubled by what's being said, which in many cases is exactly what we needed at the time. Right? We need to hear what God has to say to us so that we might continue on the straight and narrow. In addition to reading the scriptures, we must understand that reading alone is not guaranteeing anything. Right? So that's no, I've, you know, man, I read three chapters today. That, 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 that doesn't mean anything. Scripture teaches us that in all you're getting, get what? An understanding, right? So merely reading the word is not an advantage. In other words, reading doesn't mean that the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly. Reading is good. Reading is beneficial. And reading is helpful, but it does not guarantee us that it is letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. To do that, we need assistance. Well, what do you think is that? What what do we need in order that the word of Christ might dwell in us richly? To assist us, let's turn to Ephesians 5. Turn to Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled 
with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This is a parallel to Colossians 3.16. Ephesians 5 says, be filled with the Spirit. And Colossians 3 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. These verses explain the necessity of having the Spirit of God as our guide to help us as we meditate on the Word of God when we're reading. Right? So, so we must pray, we must ask the Spirit of God to walk alongside us. Right? That, that's what the Spirit does. He's the paraclete. He's the one that walks with us. And so we're to show our dependence upon the Spirit of God when we read the Word of God. And so we should not be led by natural influences when, we, when reading the Word of God. Instead, we are to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We're to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God controls and influences us is not a matter of practice alone, but it's also a matter of changing our hearts and our motivations to the point of loving the things that God loves, hating the things that God hates unto obedience. Right? So, so there's some work in us that needs to be done as we read. That's what we're called to do. Then we're letting, then we're truly letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So as we read the word of God, we become rich only when the spirit of God participates with us. Then we're rich. But we're not rich just by reading long passages and spending a long time listening in the word, we need the Spirit of God to do something to us, to change us. We need to continue to put off the old man and put on Christ. We need assistance for that. And so, we, we need help. One commentator states it like this Richness comes when. As we are yielded to the Holy Spirit, we meditate upon short passages, memorize others, and then do what they say, unquote. What does it matter for us to read the whole book and don't do anything in it? Right? It's, it's stupid and it's a waste of time, right? But, but when we get under the word of God and we begin seeing change, Right? Okay, we win in now. Because in the past, I would have done that, but I'm not doing that anymore. I see that I'm being changed now. What I want now is I find more pleasure in obeying God than myself. Then I become thirsty and hungering for the things of God. God says, if you, if you want that, I'll fill you up. 
right? And we just keep going back to the well, and we fill up with him more. We keep eating on the word. Isn't that what Jesus said? Man, I'm not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. So when we eat that up, we're going to have comfort in God, and we're going to be richly blessed. Right? So how is that manifested in our lives? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and he says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let me ask you this. Can you imagine what that was like? It sounds like revival, right? Like people just busting out, singing praises and giving glory to God. Can you imagine that? Somebody over here, they, they got a song. Somebody over there, they have a song. Can you imagine if we really contemplated being thankful? What do you think our singing would be like? Huh? What do you think our prayers would be like? If we really grabbed hold of that, you think we'll remain the same? We wouldn't be able to wait till we get to church, right? If we really contemplated that and we were thankful on a regular basis, I wish you would give me a song, right? We would want to honor God and love him the more. And so, it would be out of hearts of thankfulness to God that the people of God would respond. And when that happens, we're only recognizing that God is good. Right? Paul says, look, I I can't help myself. I can't constrain myself. He's he's done so much for me. And so... um, We see in Nehemiah 9 that the whole congregation there might have been singing. And there in Nehemiah 9.15, it says, the song might have been like this. uh, You gave them bread from heaven for the hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their... Man, can you imagine that? They're talking about the bread that rained down. They're talking about the water that came out of the rock. We, we got to see. We've seen it, right? We've seen it. And that's what we have to do ourselves. We have to look at our own lives and recognize the goodness that we've received. And in that, we are to sing. And so it says, and I told them to go into possess the land. And you had sworn. And God told them, you know, I got you. Don't worry about it. They saw the cloud, right? Uh, then you have this idea of them food, bread raining down. I mean, all of these things happening. The people love to sing songs with gratitude in their hearts. Do you like to sing like that? Right? Then it's not about the tune. It's deeper. Right? It's not about the tomb. It's deeper than that. 
So can you imagine if as a church we sung like that? When the word of God is received properly, it leads to thanksgiving and music. We do it all the time. Something good happens. Like, no, 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 no. We singing and humming. It's like, what happened to you? Oh, man, I got the job today. Right? And they're talking about the good things that have happened to them. These are the natural things that seem to happen. And we're saying when God be God, we ought to have a song. Right? We ought to have a song. And it ought to lead us to thanksgiving and music. We saw this through our church history, right? Because when the word richly indwelt the people, the songs and the hymns were beautiful, right? We like, man, this is, I could preach this, <laughs> right? This is amazing, right? It tells the story. We, we, we know it. Do you remember those old gospel hymns we used to sing back in the day? Amazing Grace. That'll do something for you. Blessed assurance. Go telling on the mountain. Great is thy faithfulness. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Jesus, keep me near the cross and so on. Right? When we've been in the word and when we've been filled by the spirit of God, we can't glide through songs. No, 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 no. We, we sang those songs with conviction, with joy and thankfulness in our hearts. Because we know what God has done for us. Right? When we know that, we don't, we don't need anybody else. Right? We can sing for ourselves because we know that God has been good to me. We're making it personal because when we know what God has done, one writer states it like this, when the buckets of our lives are full to the brim with God's word, we cannot move without spilling forth in song. Music is the window of our soul, unquote. So if we're to be judged by our singing to God, would there even be a song? That's what we're challenged with. How many songs have we sang lately because of the goodness of God? Right? So if we're to be judged by our singing, we have to ask ourselves, will there even be a song? Will people even know? People even know we're Christians. Right? Or do we feel shame when people talk about Christians? We don't want to be identified. Right? Those are the kinds of questions we must ask ourselves, and we must remember who we are and what he has done for us. He has bought us with his blood, and we're not our own, right? That's enough right there, right? So when we are filled by the Spirit and the Word, how can we keep from singing? All right? According to Colossians 3.16, we can't. Chris Tomlin wrote a song called How Can I Keep From Singing? 
the rhetorical question. The point is we can't. Right? The chorus says, how can I keep from singing your praise? How can I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? How can I keep from shouting your name? I know I am loved by the king. And it makes my heart want to sing. I can sing in troubled times. Sing when I win. I can sing when I lose my step and fall down again. I can sing because you pick me up. Sing because you're there. I can sing because you hear me, Lord, when I call to you in prayer. I can sing with my last Brett, sing for I know that I'll sing with the angels and the saints around the throne. Lastly, my fourth point, Paul instructs the church to do everything in the name of Christ with thanksgiving. It's a matter of attitude. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our intentions and actions ought to be developed out of a desire to please and honor Christ with thanksgiving in our hearts. Whatever it is, it must begin with Christ as the foundation and the motivation for everything that we do. Isn't that what the scripture says? Test. What? All things. Right? And so if we're, we're having the mind of Christ and we're doing things to please and honor God, we must know what our end game would be. We must have goals. We must have plans. We must be specific. We must be intentional. How can I glorify God in this? Right? So... The name of Christ is precious to the one who believes. All true believers have intentions to honor and glorify God. We are bound to give thanks to God. It's our nature by way of the Spirit of God because he reminds us of the teachings about the Father and the Son. Listen to Psalm 107, 8 and 9. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. This is who we are. We are Christians guided by the way, and his name is Jesus Christ, where he says, I am the way. He alone is the son of the true and living God. We are his and he is ours. All that the Lord Jesus has done was in obedience to the Father and for his love, his people, his bride, the church. So when we understand the mission of the Son of God, we naturally give glory and thanks to the Father through Christ. 
Our lives have the controlling spirit of God at work in us. So that everything as a whole all together is being brought under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in the life of Paul. As evidenced in Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, right? That's where we have to be with it. We can't get into heaven on the basis of what mama did or daddy did, or friend or uncle or anybody. Christ must be Lord in our own lives, and we must have him as Lord. And this is what Paul is doing. He says, Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dunge, rubbish, in order that I might gain, that I might win, that I might gain Christ. Then he says in Romans 14, 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. Is that your plea? Do you know Christ today? Is he your Lord and Savior? Do you count everything as lost because Christ is worth it? Christ as Lord and Savior. If you don't believe in him as your Lord and Savior, Hell is real, and it is awaiting those who deny Christ, who is man's only hope. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. Believe that he was buried and rose again from the grave for your sins. And Be saved by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn. Repent. And this day, live for him for the rest of your life. Now, we're not calling you to perfection. So it's not Christ and good works. Hear that. Christ alone. That's it. That's it. And if the faith is real, you'll see evidence of change in your life that only God can do. We're not asking you to earn your place in the kingdom. We're saying receive it. Christ has done the work. All we have to do is put faith in him, receive what he has done for us. And the scripture says, For God so loved the world, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The penalty is for those who disbelieve. Christ is that dividing line. But the scripture goes on to say, for those who disbelieve, it's condemned already. The guillotine is waiting. Sentencing is waiting. And for the person to be forever disconnected and separated from God. That don't have to be. Because he's given us opportunity. 
So live to the Lord. Psalm 25, 4 and 5 says, make me to know your ways. You can pray this if you don't know him. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. I wait all the day long. I wait on you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Your word is for your people. Your word brings salvation. The faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We pray that you would have your way with us. May your word remain with us through this upcoming week that we might bring glory to your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.